Thank you. If you would this morning, turn with me to the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. It says in verse 1, When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. This follows the Sermon on the Mountain. It says, And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Here in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to find that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be putting into practice the things that he has preached about his kingdom in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. You'll find three individuals are healed that are specified and multitudes are healed that are not specified, but just general healings. The first one is this leper. The second one will be a centurion servant. And the last one will be Peter's mother-in-law who's suffering from a fever. Three very different diseases, but yet the Lord Jesus Christ was capable and well able to take care of whatever disease he ever faced. I don't know if um, there's a lot of questions as to why there was so much disease and so many demons in Jesus' day in the land of Judea. Some think it's because they had become so wicked and so strong in their stand against the things of God that this was a judgment against them. That very well may be. I speculate myself, it's probably mainly that Satan knew that the Son of God was in the world. And he was mounting his greatest offensive against the Son of God and the kingdom from heaven while the Son of God was in this world in hopes, foolish hopes, that maybe he might overthrow the kingdom of God once for all. Because you read about him in the Old Testament. He says, I'll be like the Most High. He wants a throne, he wants a dominion, he wants authority, and he would love to displace the Lord if he could. But always remember this about Satan. He, like us, is a created being. God created him, and I don't know why. God knew he would fall just like he knew we would fall. So why did God create us? It's according to his good pleasure. Uh, but he's a created being, and as such, remember, he is always subject to the sovereign power of God. And that's why John could write in 1 John, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now we shouldn't take Satan lightly. <laughs> and as we'll see this morning, he has great influence and great power. But we always need to remember that there's one in us who's greater than the one that's in this world. So in the days of Jesus, you find sickness was rampant. <laughs> um, Demons were everywhere. I mean, we'll find uh, this morning where a demon-possessed child is uh, blessed by God for deliverance. But uh, obviously Satan is very active. But here in this case, we want to look at first this morning is intriguing. First of all, this is the first time that Jesus is going to be called Lord. Now, he'll be referred to as Lord prior to this in general. But this is the first time in any gospel account, in all the gospels, this is the very first time that an individual approaches Jesus Christ and calls him Lord. I think that's important. There's something in this man that recognizes that Jesus owns him, that he belongs to Christ. That's what Lord in the New Testament means. One who is a possessor of and has authority over another. So when we say he is the Lord Jesus Christ, he's our Lord, we're saying, I'm a possession of his, I belong to him, he owns me. Uh, you're either going to be a, a subject of his or a subject of the kingdom of darkness. That's the two citizenships you're going to have spiritually speaking. And so you may say, well, I don't want to be owned by any. Well, you are. Uh, you're either going to be owned by sin or you're going to be owned by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I promise you, he's a much better captor uh, than sin is. 
When it says in Ephesians chapter 4, he led captivity captive. That's not a negative thing at all. That's a very blessed thing. You were uh, freed from the captivity of sin, but now you're in bondage to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no better uh, bondmaster to have than him. So it says, when he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper, notice this, and worshipped him. Now, this leper is doing things that are contrary to the law. Um, he was supposed to say this, unclean, unclean. As you read the 13th chapter of the book of Leviticus, which deals with uh, discerning leprosy, chapter 14 of Leviticus deals with what occurs when a leper's been healed or cleansed and all the processes to go on, um, you're going to find that they had to live apart. They could not live among the company of the children of Israel. They couldn't live in the camp. They couldn't live with their own families. Even Uzziah, king of Israel, when he uh, became a leper in defiance to God, when he went into the house of God and defied not only the Lord, but the Lord's priest, and he was made a leper in, his, in their sight, he had to be put aside. He was still king in name, but his son had to rule in his stead. So here's a leper, he's supposed to say unclean, unclean, but he comes to the Lord and worships him. How does he worship him? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly. Did he fall down? Uh, did he bow on his knees? We don't know exactly. We know this though. He worshiped him by saying, Lord, by his expression that you're my master, that I belong to you and you have power and dominion over me, that is a form of worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you and I recognize and when we express uh, that word Lord and Master, we are saying we understand uh, that we are uh, small, uh, that we are infirm, that we are weak, that we are unable, that we're incapable, and that we need one uh, who will reign over us, that we belong to, but also who takes great care over those whom he's the Master of. And so this man approaching the Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't say unclean, unclean. Jesus already knows he's a leper, no doubt. But he comes to the Lord Jesus, but notice what he says. He says, Lord, and once again, this is the first time that any individual has recognized the Lord Jesus Christ and openly expressed him to be their master. He says, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Notice what he says again. Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. He just said to the Lord Jesus Christ, I know that you're able. He believed in the miraculous power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if thou wilt, thou canst. I understand that you're able to do what I'm requesting. So again, he believed in the miraculous power of the Son of God. But at this moment, much like me, oftentimes, there may be a little bit of doubt in the miraculous love of the Son of God. But understand, without the miraculous love of the Son of God, the miraculous power of the Son of God is immaterial to you and I. Uh, we understand that God is a God of all power. Uh, he's able to do all things. Uh, there's uh, nothing beyond His knowledge, nothing beyond His sight. And we understand that if He would mark iniquities, who would stand? None of us could stand. And so, believe in the miraculous power of God. Uh, as you read, as you're reading right now through the book of Genesis, uh, it's hard to doubt the miraculous power of God. As you see Him uh, working as He created the world, as He uh, flooded the world, as He dispersed mankind at the Tower of Babel, there's no doubt of the miraculous power of God. But then especially when you read in Genesis chapter 6 and see that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then when you start reading about the life of Abraham and Isaac and especially the life of Jacob, you begin to see the miraculous love of God uh, open before us in the very early book of the Scriptures to let us know that this God who has all power is also a God with miraculous love. And it's important for you and I not to forget that aspect of the nature of God as well. That yes, He has all power, as Jesus would say in John 17. All power is given me both in heaven and earth, He says. But thank God, He's also a God with miraculous love. A love that is so miraculous it can reach down to the vilest of sinners. As the song says, uh, that He is able to take away a Mary or Manasseh's stains or sins more vile than they. Uh, there's no situation 
that an elect of God can find themselves in that's beyond the miraculous love and also the miraculous power of the Son of God. So here in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is going to deal with leprosy. Now leprosy in the Word of God is a picture of sin. It's a disease, but the reason it's a picture of sin is it's communicable. In other words, it's, it can be passed on. It's contagious. But not only is it communicable, it also is a sin that is a sin that, I mean, a, a sickness that is, it's basically, it was a living death. I mean, we're all dying. I think we know that. Um, Paul said, though our outward man perish, our inward man is renewed day by day. Our outward man is perishing every day. Lydia had to show me something this week, a uh, spot on the back of my head I've got to have looked at. And I was asking her what it looked like, so she had to take a photograph. And when she did, I noticed I'm getting a bald spot back there. And that's bothering me a little bit. So uh, anyway, uh, and I also noticed how much silver was back there. I, I see I can't see back there. So I, I didn't know that until she had to show me. Um, and that's, I know it's funny, it's a small, but it's a reality that our bodies, they're decaying. They're withering away. Uh, it, it's, it's sin having its course. Lust, when it's conceived, bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. That's the end result. That's what's going to happen. Every disease that's in this world is a real-life testimony that sin exists. Now, as Brother David Crawford spoke to us on New Year's Eve night, that um, just because you have a particular sickness is not necessarily a judgment about a particular sin, but it does point to the fact that you are a sinner, that we all have the nature of sin within us. Leprosy was, when, you, when a priest came, according to Leviticus 13, and did all that was required to determine leprosy. When he finally pronounced a leper a leper, it was a death sentence. They were known as walking dead men. And there was a reason they had to stay six feet apart. They could not come within six feet of anyone else. And if there was any wind, I believe the distance at that point became 150 feet. They had to stay from any other individual. They could not embrace their wife. They could not ever embrace their children again. If they were a grandparent, they could not come up and embrace their grandchildren. Imagine what that felt like to be so uh, detached from humanity that you could not feel that unless it was another leper, you could not feel the touch of a loved one ever again. Uh, that was done. That was over. Uh, it was, I mean, the cleansing of a leper was Almost unheard of. In fact, as you read in the Old Testament, you're going to find very few examples of a leper who is cleansed. At the moment, I can only think of two. Uh, I think of Miriam, the uh, sister of Moses, who uh, rebelled against Moses and the Lord. And so uh, God made her a leper in the sight of Moses and of Aaron. Uh, and Moses interceded for her. And God determined that for seven days she would abide as a leper without the camp of Israel. And so uh, that's what was required. But after seven days, she's healed. In 2 Kings chapter 5, there's the host of the Syrian army by the name of Naaman. And he hears from a Jewish maid that there's a man in Israel uh, that she wishes her master uh, could know and have communion with because she believes that Elisha could heal him. And so he uh, speaks that to the king and the king of Syria sends word to the king of Israel and the king of Israel is greatly afraid of this because he knows uh, he has no ability and if he does not heal this general of the host of the Syrian army the Syrians may turn against him. But Elisha he sends word to the king that he's not to be concerned and so Naaman he comes down to the house of Elisha but Elisha won't even come out the door. Won't even give him an audience. He's a little irritated by this. And then he says, you go to Jordan and wash seven times. Well, Naaman at first, he thinks this is, 
a dreadful thing. I mean, why would he said, we have better rivers in Syria? Why would I go down to Jordan and Washington, Jordan? And so he begins to take his journey back home and just forget the whole matter. He had a wise servant that says, if he'd have told you to do this and this thing, some great, you would have done it. But all he says is go down to Jordan, dip seven times, you'll be clean. He does it, and that's exactly what occurs. I can't think of any other Old Testament example of the cleansing of a leper. Maybe one that I'm missing. If so, remind me after service. But in the New Testament, you're going to find there's several. This one's the first. You're going to find in the Gospel of Luke, there were ten that come to the Lord Jesus. And he heals all ten, commands them to present themselves to the priest. But there's one who was a Samaritan, by the way. Uh, he turns. He glorified God. And he thanked the Lord Jesus Christ like he should. And he worshipped him. Remember what Jesus said? Where are the nine? You know, none of them turned back to glorify God. I would think that if I had something so horrendous as leprosy, if I was cleansed of it, I would hope that I... Listen, you and I have had something as tremendous and worse than leprosy. It's called sin. You've been cleansed from that. The Lord Jesus Christ has taken that out of the way, and that's why we gather every week, as we do here at Little Union Church, hopefully to present our bodies as a thank offering to the one who has cleansed us and healed us from leprosy. So a leper, again, they, they are abandoned by humanity. They're unclean. It's even written in Jewish history that by the days of the Lord Jesus Christ, priests actually bragged that they would take up stones and cast them at lepers. Uh, and here these are poor folks. They can't help uh, the fact that they've contracted this. But it was viewed as the ultimate judgment of God against an individual by Jewish scholars and leadership, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders. If a person was a leper, there was no doubt in their minds they've done some great wicked sin and God was judging them for it. If you've read anything about leprosy, you'll find that it starts to affect first the nervous system. And before long, the hands and the appendages will begin to stiffen and even curl up, sort of like uh, rheumatoid arthritis might do. Um, I remember a poor sister when I was growing up. The Bible talks about a woman who was bowed over, bowed over. Uh, I grew up knowing a lady just like that. She literally was bent half in two and could barely barely raise her head enough to walk to see she was an elderly lady and just like the woman described in the scriptures i've seen women that particularly women that their hands they just that we had a sister at the church at abilene uh when i was a child um one of the most wonderful people i ever knew uh, sister hale was her name and uh her hands she couldn't sew she couldn't hardly cook she couldn't do anything because she could not even bend her fingers that was from rheumatoid arthritis so imagine your, your hands and your feet become so crippled that it's, you can't function. That's not the end of it. Before long, they'll begin to fall off. Your nose would fall off, ears would fall off, and there would be open wounds and sores, and this would spread until finally it would take the life of the victim that had this horrible plight. And so just imagine this man. He comes to the Lord Jesus again. It says, he, he comes, he doesn't, I don't know if he got closer than six feet, but he doesn't say unclean, unclean. He says, um, Lord, if thou wilt. He worships Jesus. He says, if thou, I know that you are able. I just don't know if you're willing. Again, he had confidence in the miraculous power of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he lacked anything, it was a lack of confidence in the miraculous love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered, I know Jesus can in my case, but will he? I've been there. There have been times I had no doubt whatsoever in my mind about the ability of the Son of God to step into my situation and to fix it in a moment. I knew that He could just speak a word like He did to the wind and the waves and all of a sudden there'd be a calm in my life where before there had been a great storm and upheaval. I just didn't know if He would be willing to do so. And so I would cry out and hope that he would, but yet there would be doubting in my heart and uh, a concern that he would actually do so. Well, notice how Jesus responds to the leper. Jesus, now understand, he breaks the law, but yet he doesn't. 
He doesn't. When the priest would observe, even he had to get close enough to see, but he still kept a little distance. So when I say Jesus, he didn't do exactly what Leviticus 13, this, he's going to touch this man. But remember, just like he's Lord of the Sabbath, he's also Lord over this man. And as such, he's not breaking the law. Now, no other person has the right to do what Jesus is about to do. He's the only one because he's the son of God. And as the son of God, he could touch this man. Nobody else had any legal right. In fact, they were legally banned by Leviticus 13 to even come close to this man, much less touch him. I don't know how long this man had been a leper. Let's presume it's been years. So this man has not, at least for days, weeks, months, or years, felt the, uh, the touch of another human being, most likely. I don't know that lepers went around hugging other lepers. I mean, that's just not what I picture in my mind. Um, maybe they did. Maybe they took compassion and had pity on one another. I don't know. But it's possible that this man has not felt the human touch uh, in such a while that now all of a sudden the one he's going to feel is going to be the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that. It's like individuals who are born in this world blind, but they're children of God. Imagine the first thing they'll ever see. The first thing they'll ever see is when they awaken glory and behold the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you what, I, that's not so bad when you really stop and think about it. When you look at all the corruption and carnality that you and I have to behold in this world every day. Uh, to never have to view those things. And the first thing you ever see is the face of Christ. That's a, a blessed situation. Sometimes we just got to put things in the right perspective. But anyway... Here this man hasn't felt the touch of another individual, most likely in weeks, months, or maybe even years. But Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will. What was the question? Lord, if thou wilt, if you're willing, what does Jesus say? I'm willing. He says, I will. Be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, when I think of a disease, and I think of it going away, I use the term, he's healed, or she's healed. And there's different ways we can be healed. We've had loved ones that were in bad shape, physically speaking, and we prayed they would be healed. And some of them left the hospital room and went home and were back with their families and came back to the house of God and they were healed to face another sickness or another struggle, another trouble, and death later down the road. Some of the ones that we've loved and we've prayed diligently for the Lord to step in and heal them, he did. Just not in the way that we were praying for. He called them home. And they're in heaven now and they're healed. <laughs> Not to face sickness again, disease and affliction and trial or death because they've already experienced that and they're with the Lord. So I think when an individual is, uh, when the remedy of their sickness comes, I think of it in terms of healing. That's not what the scriptures describe it here. Notice what it says. His leprosy was cleansed. This is an alluding to the fact that there was sin in his life and that Again, sickness is a result of sin. We can argue that all day long if we want, but the fact of the matter remains that as long as you and I are in mortal bodies, sin will, will impact us and we're going to deal with diseases. You know, there are some folks that actually believe that when they're born again of the Spirit of God, that it impacts them body, soul, and spirit, and that they're no longer sinners. I remember hearing Brother Sonny Piles talk about a certain woman one time that she believed in that. Uh, she believed that she was not a sinner, and she said so. And so, <laughs> Brother Sonny, as he described it, they were nose to nose, and he was arguing and defending the fact that you and I still have the old nature, the old man to contend with, and she was arguing that she didn't have that anymore. So finally he said, then why do you have gray hair, glasses, and wrinkles? Uh, <laughs> of course, he couldn't argue that. She got highly offended, of course, as well. But, you know, sometimes you need somebody like a Brother Sonny to just say it just like it is. <laughs> Um, she needed to hear it just like it was. The fact that you and I are decaying is testimony of the fact sin still reigns in our mortal bodies. It does. 
it's having its way. We can go down through the list of people that we have known and loved and watch them leave this world. Sin reigned in their mortal body until they died. And when they died, sin was finished. When we read there in James 1, lust when it's conceived bringeth forth sin. Sin when it's finished bringeth forth death. The one bright spot in that is sin is finished at death. But until then, it's not. We have to contend with it. But notice again, Jesus touches this man, says, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. It's alluding to something deeper than just the healing of a disease. It's really alluding to the reality that Jesus is his savior and his sin is going to be put away. Verse 4, it says, And Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. And you can read Leviticus 14 to find exactly what gift was required. There were two birds uh, that would be in an offering. There would be three lambs that would be in an offering. And so there would be um, multiple uh, rituals that would have to be gone through. A cleansing that would take place apart from the people of God. A cleansing that would take place at their home. And finally, the final cleansing that would happen at the door of the tabernacle or the door of testimony. So he had to go do all those things. There were steps he had to take. It was going to take eight days to go through this entire process. And so that's what he was required to do. But again, this man comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, says, Lord, again, the first time anybody says this, Master, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Now turn with me to Mark the ninth chapter, please. In Mark the ninth chapter, we find that it says in verse 14, he says, and when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out and they could not. He answered him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him straightway, the spirit tear him and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child, and oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. Notice this. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It's amazing what a loving mother or father will do for their children. A biblical mother or father will go to great lengths for a child they love. I think about the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and there was a Syrophoenician woman, and when Jesus was coming through the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, she has a daughter who's grievously vexed with the devil, and so she comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. She's a Gentile. She knows she has no right to expect anything of him, but she says, Lord, thou son of David, uh, be merciful unto me. And of course, Jesus answered her not a word. And so then she goes to the disciples. And the disciples, they try to send her away. And then finally, they go to the Lord and say, send her away. She crieth after us. And then the Lord says, it's not me to, uh, well, first he says uh, that I've come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, she continues to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. She won't go away. And finally the Lord says, it's not me, it's not right to, to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. She says, truth, Lord, but even the dogs, either the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus, uh, he marvels at her. And he says, be it unto thee according as thou wilt. Thy faith uh, hath made thy daughter whole. And the Bible says that her daughter was made whole from that very hour. So here comes this woman. Uh, again, she's a Jew, She had, I mean a Gentile, she has no reason to think that Jesus will have any compassion on him on her. Uh, she has no reason to think that there's going to be any help from this Jewish man. 
But remember also the night that Brother David spoke to us from Zechariah, the 8th chapter. He let us know that there would be individuals from various nations that would do what? They would grab onto the skirts of a man who was a Jew. This woman was hopeful that this man that she's heard about would have compassion on her and on her daughter. And so she knows this is her only opportunity to be in the vicinity of where Jesus is. So she goes boldly. And she asked the first time. No answer. So she asked the disciples the second time. No answer except uh, the Lord telling her basically to go away. She doesn't stop with that. Uh, she presses forward in her request to the Lord Jesus Christ till finally He grants it. Now I believe it was the intent of Jesus to grant it all along. Oftentimes you and I lack what we need from Him because we quit asking after the first time. This woman, she didn't quit asking. She's like that widow that went before the unjust judge. And she just kept going and kept going and kept going until finally because of her importunity, meaning she just would not quit, the unjust judge avenged her of her adversary. Well, here this man, he first comes to the disciples. But the disciples, they're not able to help. You and I probably would have said, well, if they can't help, they're... The disciples of Jesus, he probably can't either. We might as well turn around and go home. That's not what this man does. This man, he presses forward. He stays on the scene. And then when Jesus arrives, uh, he confesses to the Lord Jesus about what his son has gone through. But notice as he describes it, especially in verse 22. Imagine this as a parent. Think about this for your child. I've never encountered a situation like this. I've not known somebody uh, that was torn by a spirit that wallowed on the ground um, uh, foaming. I've never seen something like that. I can't imagine what that would do. I've not seen it in other folks, but imagine if that's in your own house. Imagine if you have to stand by and watch as your own child that you love with all of your heart is going through this. What would that do to you? Um, that's what this man's going through. Notice verse 22. He says, Oft times it hath cast him into the fire. This man, this boy, this child has the burn marks to show where this spirit has tried to destroy him by throwing him into a fire. It says it's cast him into the waters and hoping, in hopes of drowning him to destroy him. This spirit, for whatever reason, despised this child so much it's tried to take his life. But then the father says, If thou canst do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. And at first, as you read that, you might say, the goal of this man to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, say, if thou canst do anything. Don't quite read it that way. This is a man needing pity. This is a man who's just taught with the disciples and obtained no help whatsoever. They tried. They couldn't do anything about it. Later, in fact, they're going to ask Jesus why they couldn't. They're amazed by the fact that they couldn't drive out this devil either. And this man didn't give up. He stayed on the scene. Jesus arrives. He tells him all. And he says, if thou canst do any... In other words, if there's any mercy in you whatsoever, if there's any kindness, any compassion, any power, I beg of you is what he's saying. Help us. And Jesus said to him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. You know, in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, you find the occasion where Jairus comes to the Lord Jesus Christ because his daughter is homesick. And he meets the Lord Jesus Christ in his journey and asks Jesus if he would come. And Jesus agrees. But as they start the journey to the house of Jairus, there's an interruption. There's a woman with an issue of blood, a woman who's hemorrhaged. And she's gone to the doctors. She's sought all kinds of help. The Bible says that she had sought many things and many physicians and was none better but was worse. And also on top of that, she spent all that she had. Now, I'm not the most patient fellow. And if I'd have been Jairus, I'd have said, you can come back to her later. We got to go. We don't have time for this. She's had this condition 12 years. You just circle back and you bless her later on. But I need you at my house right now. I'm amazed in that whole story about the, that he stays so calm. On the, at least from what I read of the experience of Jared, I don't see a man that seems to be greatly disturbed as Jesus pauses to help this woman. Now, me, I mean, he might have been over there fretful. He might have been over there saying in his mind, we're wasting time. We've got to hurry. We've got to go. We've got to get there. Uh, I don't know what exactly was going on in his mind, but on the surface it appears that he 
didn't seem to be all that anxious. So the Lord, he heals the woman with issue of blood. And in the process of time, as he stops to do that, here come servants from the house of Jairus. And you know what they tell him? The damsel is dead. Trouble, not the master. Don't trouble him. You know what they're saying? It's beyond help. Which means you're beyond hope. She's beyond any, there's nothing he can do now. Don't, don't trouble him, let him go. Let him go about his way. But I love how Jesus responds. Jesus says in Luke chapter 8 verse 50, he says, Fear not, believe only, and thy daughter shall be made whole. And apparently he believed because they travel on to the house of Jairus. And as they come in, there's a lot of weeping. And Jesus asks why they make all this ado. He says, the damsel's not dead. She just sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. The Bible says that he put everybody out except for the mother and the father and Peter, James, and John. And he says to her, damsel, arise. And she arose, and then he commanded them in the room, give her to eat. Which was indication, of course, she's alive. Which is why Jesus commands them to do so. But again, think about what Jesus tells that man. Fear not, believe only. And thy daughter shall be made whole. I ask you this morning, how important is believing? Now, we often think of belief and unbelief in this sense. Well, that person believes in God. This person doesn't believe in God. Let's take that equation out of the picture for a moment. Yes, there's unbelievers in this world that hate God, and some of them always will hate God. And don't worry, they'll believe in God at the last day. But let's just take believers for a moment. I hope everyone in this room that's able is a believer. But are you like the father in Mark chapter 9, that when he says, Lord, if thou canst do anything, help us, have compassion on us. And notice what Jesus, he says, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And I love how the father responds. We sang the hymn a few moments ago. He says, and straightway. I love that. And straightway. The father didn't have to think about this. He didn't have to ponder about this. He didn't have to think about an answer. He didn't have to go uh, study resources. He didn't go to commentaries. Uh, He didn't have to do any of that. It says, and straightway, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. That's one of the most honest statements of any sinner in all the word of God. He says, Lord, I believe. But there's a problem. There's a part of me that doubts. There's a part of me that wonders. There's a part of me that's not quite convinced. And so I need you to step in and help the part that doesn't believe. So I ask the question again, is belief important? It's vital. Now, I'm not talking about it's vital for heaven. It's not. Uh, You and I understand that believing the gospel is not what gives us entrance into heaven. Uh, In fact, Paul addresses that at least twice in his writings. In Romans, the third chapter, he says, For what if some did not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without a faith? He says, God forbid! You know what he just says there? That the faithfulness of God is not contingent on you believing or not believing. The faithfulness of God is contingent on the fact that God is faithful no matter what. Uh, he would say to Timothy, he says, If we do not believe, he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself so two times at least in Paul's writings he addresses what happens when a believer fails to believe when a child of God fails to believe what happens God is faithful shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect God forbid he says for what if some did not believe he says God can't deny himself He says, God is faithful. Both times, what's Paul's response to a child of God's lack of belief? God is faithful. That's the answer. So again, our belief is not not going to deliver us from this world to the world to come. That's not how it happens. But I will say that our belief brings great 
rest and peace and also praise to the one in whom we believe. I like what Paul says, I know him in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What had Paul committed to him? The keeping of his soul. Paul said, I know that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He's going to take care of my life all the way to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, here in Mark chapter 9, the father says, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. As we consider unbelief for just a moment, again, belief is vital. And I'm not talking about, it's vital for you and I each and every day. Now, there's going to be moments that you doubt the promises of God. It's going to happen. You're a human being. It, it, it's just going to occur. As I said, one of my great struggles is the same struggle as the leper. It's not whether Jesus can. It's whether Jesus will. Now, there's moments that I question the reality of God, the reality of heaven. I'm human like anybody else. Now, thankfully, those moments are rare in my experience, but it does occur. And so I go back to the word of God, and it's through faith we understand that the world's refrained by the word of God. And thankfully, what do I need? I need the Lord to increase my faith. And one of the ways I do that is by reading the word of God, assembling with the people of God, and hearing the hymns that praise God, and hearing the preached word of God. That renews and invigors my faith once again. And thankfully, that's a, a very easy solution. It doesn't take a great deal uh, to see our faith revived once again, and thus then our belief again is strong. Paul, in Romans chapter 10, addresses the issue of unbelief. He says in Romans chapter 10, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire, and let me say this at the outset of Romans 10. Romans 10 is not dealing with people believing so that they can get to heaven. What Romans 10 is dealing with is people believing so that they can understand that in Jesus Christ is where our righteousness is found. So he says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So understand this, there is a salvation in believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? That he uh, lived on this earth? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll give it to you a very a great summary. He says that he died, that he was buried. And he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. If you want the heart and essence of the gospel, it's that Jesus Christ died and was buried and he rose again the third day. Then you need to understand, well, why did he die? He died to put away our sins. He nailed our sins to the tree. That's what happened. Who in his own body bare our sins on the tree. So as Jesus was dying, he was bearing our sins. And the fact that he rose the third day was testimony that God was satisfied with the sacrifice of his son. And you and I are now cleansed in his sight. You and I who were polluted by sin, iniquity, and transgression have been delivered by the powerful uh, death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now he says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Is he saying, I want the whole nation of Israel to go to heaven? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I have brethren among the Israelites who are children of God that I wished understood what I understand so that they would be saved. Not from hell to heaven, but from ignorance to knowledge. Notice as Paul goes on. He says, for I bear them record. I've lived among them. I know this. He says, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now, it's interesting. That word of there means from. He says, they have a zeal of or from God. This is a godly zeal. This is not the zeal that Saul of Tarsus had when he persecuted the church. He was zealous towards the law, but not the God of the law. These men that he's talking about, they're zealous towards God. These are individuals that love God. They have a zeal that's come from God. And so their service is a service that they have because God has dealt with them. 
There are many people in this world today, they have a zeal from God. God has born them again. They've been regenerated and given life in the Lord Jesus Christ. But they're ignorant of how that came to be. They're ignorant of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they need salvation. They need gospel deliverance. That's what the word salvation most of the time means is simply deliverance. So what do they need deliverance from? Ignorance to knowledge. That's what Paul will go on to say. He says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Notice that again. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. It is my firm conviction that it's the nature of humanity, born again or not, to save ourselves. There are people all over this world, it's, it's innate in man to worship. There's, we are part of the creation and as such, I believe it's just in the genetic code of man to want to worship something. Now there's some people that like Paul, Saul of Tarsus, he wanted to worship. He didn't worship God. He worshiped the law. Some people uh, worship uh, um, the images that man have made with their hands. Uh, some will worship ideas that they have come up with. Some worship uh, scientific theory. Uh, some worship, for instance, uh, atheists. You know why they're so firm and so vigorous in their debates? Because it's their religion. It's what they worship. Uh, they believe it uh, as strongly, maybe even more strongly, than you believe in the gospel account and the biblical account of creation. And you start uh, knocking away at their foundation, and the reason they get so upset is because they worship that thought. Uh, if they truly were scientists, which means gaining knowledge, and you were showing them uh, factual knowledge of the reality of God, if they truly were wanting knowledge, you know what they would do? They would cast atheism aside, uh, they would cast uh, evolution aside, and they would embrace the God of creation. The reason they don't is they worship what they believe. <laughs> so, again, belief is it's vital, but notice what he says. He says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Again, I've, I just said, I believe it's our nature to put it, we're basically Arminians by nature. We want to save ourselves. How many times have you talked to somebody about the doctrines of grace and that's just too good to be true? I'm thankful it is true. And I'm thankful it's that good. Here's the problem for somebody who will not submit themselves under the righteousness of God, and they're going about to submit to, they go about to establish their own righteousness. There's two ends for that person, so long as they're trying to do that. Two ends. One is they actually believe they're righteous enough that they've satisfied God. What do you have there? You have a Pharisee, you have a legalist, and they go about us. They're they're around. <laughs> or you have the second. And that is a person in despair because they realize they're never reaching the mark. They're never making it. I don't know how many times I've preached funerals. And in that moment when mortality is on the minds of individuals, I've had folks come up to me that were comforted about the doctrine of grace in that moment as they were thinking about death because I think honestly down in their heart they knew that was the only way that they ever had a hope of entering into heaven. And I don't know how many times I've been promised that they're going to come back to hear me on a regular basis, and I've yet to see one since. What happens? They get away from that, and they don't think about mortality anymore, and they go right back to where they were. So here, the Apostle Paul says, the problem for that individual, they're trying to establish their own righteousness, so they either end up in despair or they end up uh, self-proud and arrogant and become pharisaical, believing they actually have accomplished the law to the pleasure of God. But here the Apostle Paul says that's not at all the case. He says they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Somebody who's going about to establish their own righteousness is not recognizing that we are undone in ourselves. And the only way 
that you and I can ever stand before God in a righteous standing is through the Lord Jesus Christ. We quoted this last week, but it bears quoting again. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, he says, But of Him, meaning of God, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, and notice this, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. The only righteousness you have is the righteousness that you have been made of God in Him. Uh, if you didn't have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, you would still be before Him unclean. There's a reason that He says there in Matthew chapter 8, as Matthew records that, His leprosy was cleansed. You and I have been cleansed by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, belief uh, does not save us from uh, hell to heaven. We recognize that. But it does when we understand <laughs> When we understand the gospel as we should, that we have been cleansed, not of our own doing. Because on our own, like Isaiah would say, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And an honest individual who's trying to establish themselves before God in their own righteousness, that's what they're going to conclude. So Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel that they might be saved. He's saying, I want them to hear the gospel, to know the gospel, embrace the gospel, and believe the gospel. He says, so that they'll be delivered from going about trying to establish their own righteousness and instead submit themselves to the righteousness of God. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now, Christ is the end of the law for every child of God. But experientially, meaning in our experience here in this world, the only way to know Christ as the end of the law for righteousness is to believe, is to understand the gospel, is to embrace the reality that we were lepers in his sight, but he cleansed us. That father was so, so honest. Lord, I believe, what did you, he said, if thou canst believe, what did he say to Jesus? If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus turns the table. He says, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. He said, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. One of the things I would encourage you to pray every day when you rise up, Lord, I believe you. But I need you to help me today to believe you better because there's going to be some doubts, some concerns, and moments that... I'm just not so sure. So help my unbelief. Well, we know the Lord helped his unbelief. Because he said, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And what happened? Jesus drove that demon out of that boy. And that little boy or young man was healed and presented to his father. And there he was whole. And there they went on their journey, very happy, very grateful, worshiping the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I have been delivered from a devil's hell. And we ought to rejoice. You and I have been cleansed from leprosy. We ought to worship. We have been delivered by the mighty hand of a God that has everlasting power and miraculous power. But thankfully also miraculous and everlasting love. May God bless you.